LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Ronald Green, who joins us to discuss his book, Time to Tell, A Look at How We Tick. Whether or not time is ultimately an illusion, the matrix of clocks, calendars, timetables and deadlines which regiments our lives is not what it at first appears to be. We frequently experience objective clock time very differently from the subjective time which marks our inner lives. That bittersweet feeling of time flying when you're having fun. Quantum physics is also suggesting some perturbing possibilities about the nature of time. Do past, present and future somehow coexist? Can events in the present or even the future affect past events, so-called retrocausality? Is there really such a thing as the present moment? And can anything exist outside of time? As the days, months and years roll by, and our daily routines trundle along. We don't care to think a great deal about time. It's an exorable march, little more than a one-way trip towards the annihilation of everything we are. And yet, we are creatures of time and in time, dwelling on the past, worrying about the future, all the while being encouraged to live in the moment. So this week we examine not so much what time is, but what time does, to you and I, to all of us. Hello and welcome, Ron, and thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you, Greg, for having me. Wonderful. Today, Ron, we're going to talk about your book, your latest one. It's entitled Time to Tell, A Look at How We Tick. Uh, people who've listened to the recorded introduction will know exactly what we'll be talking about. That's the, the, the ever divisive and confusing and nebulous issue of time itself. Before we dive into it, just tell listeners who don't know a little bit about your background and your work in general. I got to my present position in philosophy from uh, language and uh, linguistics, in which I have my earlier degrees and which I taught. Um, actually, I was always interested in getting, in spreading my ideas in education uh, in the ways that would mean something. And I wrote 13 uh, English as foreign language textbooks and workbooks that were used quite widely in uh, Eastern Central Europe, the Middle East, Turkey, South America. Um, at a certain point, I became interested in the potential of computers in education. I remember this was in the uh, 1980s, where one computer in the classroom was pretty advanced, e even in the States. Um, I was part of a small group of international uh, educators, the most problem, uh, prominent one being David Lloyd, uh, a, a, a true pioneer actually in the field. I think he was doing it from the, from the late 70s. Um, he had seen the potential long before anyone else. Um, at the same time, I was drawn to examining the unique nature of language within humans and that um, language is possibly the defining feature of humans. 
Um, in, in my book, I do talk about language in a slightly different way. Uh, this um, inevitably led me to the philosophy of language, to the human within philosophy and also in science. And here, here I get to sort of the crux of what, I, what I'm doing now. Um, but basically, the human being is or should be an integral part of philosophy. In, in a nutshell, and this is my point, there is no philosophy without a human exponent. Um, the inclination to have philosophy and science as dry theoretical topics in which the human plays no role is to me absurd. In fact, I said quite, quite clearly in my book, um, philosophy is a description of how humans think. Science is the way humans understand the laws of nature. And that is why um, in the work I do that culminates in my book, uh, this aims at the, the books aim at the so-called man in the street. As complicated as philosophy is, it's necessary to explain it that is understood. After all, um, it is about thinking and, and how to think. And that's basically where I, where I am, getting the human into philosophy and into science. Yeah, I think it's absurd, actually, the lengths to which some scientists and science writers and thinkers will go to try and take uh, the human being out of science, you know, which obviously it can't be done. But uh, anyway, this is rather early in the interview to be going off topic, but um, your mention of computing in schools, I do remember in the early to mid 80s, our computer science teacher, we had a ZX80 and then a ZX81, which we were allowed to look at to not touch. And when we actually got several computers, uh, you know, so there was a few workstations, which we we shared two pupils to a workstation. It was BBC B computers at that point. So that might bring back some memories for you. It certainly does. And everybody had to go out to, to a special room that had the computers. To, to have them in the classroom was, you know, wow, that was a really, really something. Yeah, we called it a lab, in fact. A lab. <laughs> yeah. A lab. Okay, so back on subject. So uh, the book is... About time. Now, I've done quite a few shows discussing the, na the nature of time and, in fact, questioning if it even, even exists as such. And you're very clear in your book that you're talking about what time does as opposed to what time is. Now, we may inevitably stumble upon questions of what time actually is in our talk, but really it's what time does. And that actually is the most important thing in terms of its relevance to people's day-to-day -day lives. Yes, I think so. It, 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 um, it's strange that it, um, it, it, it goes into things we talk about in quantum physics where the, where the particles, we, we don't really talk about what they are, but what they do. I mean, we don't see them. We only see their effects. And that, that is how I see time as when, when you can compare it to quantum mechanics. And, and I do, as you know, through, throughout the book, Show that there is a uh, is a uh, correlation b between them, and I talk particularly about the moving now, which you must probably want to ask me about anyway. I I, I presume because that is that is the basis of the book that that there is no uh, temporal now. Yeah, that's a really key point, and we'll we'll get to that shortly uh, because it's it's very very counterintuitive, uh, especially in light of most people's lived experience. But I had an early feeling in my life that that time essentially wasn't what it appeared to be or wasn't what we thought it was not what we were told it was uh, and that was very 
vague in itself, but it was a really strong sense. And that caused me to, to think about time and to consider time in all of its various dimensions. And I can't write, quite remember who the quote is from, but it's, uh, I think it sums up the experience that a lot of us have is that if we don't think about time, then we feel that we more or less know what it is and what it does. But as soon as we start really thinking about it, then we don't know what it is and what it does. Yeah, I think that comes from a Russell, but but he didn't talk about about time. I think he talked about uh, uh, philosophy. I think that's where it comes from, and I, and I I think that is uh, it's a very very good point. Uh, the, the 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 thing about time is it is so much part of us. It's uh, whatever we do. I mean, is is time? There's nothing we can do that's not that's not time filled, and that's what that's what makes it so. It's so amazing. And uh, since it's so much part of us, it, the subtitle of my book is A Look at How We Tick. And I think that is, that's really a much more than time to tell. A look as, at how we tick is, is how I look at philosophy today. Because as I said in the beginning, it is what we are and what we think that philosophy is about. You know, t- time has been a fascination, not only for philosophers for a couple of thousand years, but 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 for scientists, as you say, and uh, scientists who look for the underlying nature of reality, I have to uh, have a spoiler alert here, Greg. Um, uh, there is no underlying nature of reality. One thing that I think that uh, it was one of the reasons that, that led me to, or one of the experiences, I should say, that led me to really start thinking about the nature of time was I noticed that how it was relative and subjective. And I think most people, if they think about it for you know a very short time, will go, yes, of course. Uh, the classic example of this is when you're in a dentist's waiting room, time seems to drag waiting. Just you want to get things over with. If you're having any sort of unpleasant experience, it's when you, particularly when you're in the middle of it, it seems to take forever. And the, you know, it's the old cliche when you're on holiday, off school for the summer, doing something pleasurable. Where did the time go? It's suddenly it's all over. You can say there's an objective measure of time that will show that time spent in the de- dentist's waiting room, the time spent at the beach were the same, but that is kind of irrelevant. And it's like a lot of other uh, objective measures of the 3D reality that we experience. They almost are kind of don't matter in a way. It's our subjective experience that matters. Yes, definitely. Um, the, uh, objective, that particular word, I don't particularly like. We're going to we're going to get into that because I go very much against um, uh, ob- uh, objectivity. But uh, leaving that aside for a minute, uh, the point is that we all feel that time runs uh, relatively, and it and it does. And the what you call objective time is the time that w- that we, if we have to start this interview at a certain time, that time is for both of us what it is, and we have to do it. On the other hand, my waiting for the time that we started and your waiting for the time we started obviously behaved differently. I mean, we were we were doing different things. I was waiting and you were setting things up, etc. I'd already set things up. So yes, time does work uh, relatively, which is very, very, um, which is what I explained in the book, why that actually happens. So if I can go into that a bit now, because now I will have to mention the moving now. Well, you mentioned earlier a concept of the present moment of the now and how you have undermined and done away with that essentially in your book. And that, of course, particularly in this day and age, is one of the 
core concepts informing so many things. You know, we're, we're encouraged to live in the moment. We talk about the power of now. That has given a new perspective life to so many people who are thinking about the past, what's happened to them, worrying about the future. But when you actually boil it down, the now kind of vanishes really. And it does make sense. It feels counterintuitive. But I think at some point, I'm paraphrasing you now, but you just ask the question, when is now? And as soon as you do that, it's it's gone. Yes, well, we're talking about two different sorts of nows. The, um, the now that you're talking about, the new age now and all that, that it has nothing to do with time. That is some sort of spiritual uh, aspect of life. And I don't, I don't really deal with it. I deal with time. If I do mention that part of now, um, I'm not very, how can I put this now? I'm not very keen on that way of looking at now. I think that spiritual, I don't deal with spiritual matters. I deal with time, with a, with a te- temporal time. And if, if I do that, then I would have to ask, when is now? And I would have to ask, when does it start? And tell me exactly where now is. Tell me exactly that split second when time is, which uh, one can't. And I want to know when it, when it ends. And, and I, I can't get answers to those because time and now is just too fast for, for you to ever land on it, ever. And as soon as you land on it, it's gone. And it, and it goes to the past. And, uh, so when we, when we talk about now in time, we have to be very, very careful. And I say quite clearly that now does not exist, not as a part of time. I will, if people want to talk about now in different aspects, they're, they're entitled to it, but that's not what I deal with. So when you talk about, um, things being relative and time moving Differently, there is a reason for it, because every time each of us lands on now, it moves back into the past. It is immediately the past, and it and it moves back into memory, and it moves back and forms memory, and comes back again. Next time, there is what we call, what I don't, what is called the present. The present, by the way, is no better than now. They're, they're in, a, in time, which is a... Uh, uh, continuum. There, there is no point where you can split that off and say, now is finished. Now the past has stopped or started and now the future begins because, uh, it, it's a matter of change. And everything that I talk about it in the book is, is change. And that it, that is extremely important. My whole story is one of change. It's continuous movement and change. And that change is in the heart of my philosophy and time. Change means relativity, which we've spoken about, and it means uh, dissonance, it means fragmentation, and it means uh, approximation. And all those are part of my theory of time. Once we take those into consideration, which we do as we as we go along, we'll see why time is seems to be different for each of us because each of us has a different now. And that presents problems regarding memory, which we must probably talk about, and will present problems regarding the future. So if you think of life like a car journey, for example, from A to B, that you make without stopping, then now would be a point at which the car isn't moving. 
but that never happens. Yeah, that's, uh, that is a very good point. Uh, that's the dissonance part because we are moving linearly, and that's again where I clash with the, with the believers in now and circular time, etc. We are moving linearly from birth to death. I don't think we can, uh, we can say that, that that's not true. We're moving from birth to death. It's a linear movement. We can call it forward. On the other hand, we have now the present that moves back immediately. So we've got a very, very strange situation that the dissonance of us moving forward and now moving back into our memories. And that's where the problems with memories arise very, very clearly. And that's why um, I spend why time, why now is such an important part of everything that I, that I talk about. It's the moving now that creates what we feel and where we are. One of the ways that I've seen people try to pin down now is by looking at subdivisions of time. And they'll, they'll talk about the human experience and the speed at which our brains work and how quickly we can assimilate information with our five senses. And they'll say, okay, well now, okay, it's not a minute. That's absurd because that's quite a long period of time. If we, if you and I sit here for a minute without saying anything, that'll feel like a very long time for anyone on the other end of this. Well, what about, what about a second then? Cause that's just like that. But no, that's, that can't be now because that's even within that second, you can almost perceive that, that sort of feeling of movement. And then when you drill down and get down to nanoseconds, you eventually get to this uh, thing called Planck time which is really, really interesting. So even if you try salami slicing time to get towards something that you sort of, you can't go any further, there is this point beyond which you cannot go. So you can't even find now in any technical sense by doing that. Exactly. That's very well put. That the point is that when we talked about in the beginning about the bringing the human in, a human being can never land on Planck time. I mean, that exists as a, as a theory that that is the, the smallest uh, quantity of time. But we'll never land on it. We can't land on it. I mean, you know, that's, uh, that's one, that's one of the things that we can talk about in, in, in theory. But if we're going to talk about how we deal with time, we have to understand that that, that split second is, even as it goes, it's already moved. And when we talk about it, it is a memory. That click is a memory as all of this interview will be a memory and different memories, by the way, to both of us. Well, it should be pretty obvious then at this point from what we've said, uh, even now, that, uh, even now, <laughs> you, you realize how, how, so much of how we think about everything is in terms of, uh, in terms of past, present and future. But essentially, as you say, that there is no now, there, there is only the past and the future. And I suppose what we've also said, you know, we talked about the new age now, how we think about time and about life and that we have this sort of a functional now, which for different people will mean different things. If you ask me, what does the now mean in my life? It means at any, at any moment that I think about now, as it were, if I'm not thinking about now, if I'm not thinking about the present moment, then it's kind of nowhere. But if I talk about living in a moment, it means focusing on what's right in front of me, what I'm doing, who I'm with, whatever it happens to be at the exclusion of other things. So we have a sort of a functional now, which is kind of the general, usually a smaller bubble of time that we are in, you know, what's, what's perhaps recently happened or what's just about to happen or what we're thinking might just happen. So that's kind of your functional now. And that could also become quite a big period of time. You could take 
a sabbatical from your work for a year and it was very much about what you did during that year was was kind of in the now because you stopped you know what you were doing prior to that what your life had led up to and you but you'll go back to that at some point no but de- definitely because uh, we can talk about now in history we can talk about uh n- now we have a problem with uh people talk about climate control now but this is being going on for years we can talk about now this this century or this uh millennium now, now doesn't now doesn't mean that at all that now is what what you call a functional now but that's not when we not what we're talking about when we when we want to talk about time and say why is it important that i am saying that there is no now why 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 am i why am i doing this at, at all and and i say i'm doing it because it explains a lot of things which need to be explained it, it, we can explain uh, why memories are so strange why our memories might be completely different from somebody else's even if they were at the same event the memory would be different how how often have we read something in the newspaper of an event where we were present and we read it and we say but wait a minute i was there that wasn't that not what happened at all and 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 both of us are talking about the same event so which one was right i i can't say mine was right even if i would like to because that would be uh, i mean a very arrogant thing to say my right mine now is right yours isn't but the point is that my my now is right to the way i remember it as yours is the way you remember it i'm not saying that that, that you're wrong that you don't remember it correctly i don't remember it correctly either neither of us can remember it correctly that's why time is such a dodgy thing because we're relying on our individual now to move back and to collect all sorts of dust and other things that were there before then come back and we remember it and we start again the now moves back again over memories we had before based on on the color of what we're looking at 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 this moment whatever at this moment means yeah memories morph and change as you point out and i've always been fascinated by so-called misremembering and people remembering events differently usually it's something quite mundane oh yeah do you remember you know last christmas when you know we were at the party with bob and he was he was wearing his blue shirt and he spilt that red wine down the front it's like no it wasn't blue it was purple no it was definitely yeah. blue because he, he he got it as a present from his wife. It was blue sort of thing. And then you check with somebody else, you know, hey, you know, Susan, what color was Bob's shirt? But where it gets really interesting is where it kind of has a has a big impact on the present and the future, what happened in the past, if you see what I mean. And there's this thing called the Mandela effect, which some people have completely dismissed. But it's very interesting anyway, how you can have whole swathes of the population who have a certain view of the past that factually, I mean, when I say factually is not true, I mean that if you look at actual records, you know, non, like for example, photographs, film footage, audio, whatever it happens to be, it turns out to be not the case, but they are utterly, genuinely, honestly convinced that how events unfolded were as they imagined. Yeah, there's a very interesting example of that. Uh, 9-11, where there were three planes crashed and one plane crashed into a field i think it was in pennsylvania and people are convinced that they saw that plane crashing into the field nobody saw that plane crashing into the field nobody 
it wasn't filmed. Yeah, there was a there was a photograph of the crash site. Uh, yeah, that was what there was. But there was, as you say, there was no. It was in the middle of nowhere, as far as I can exactly. see. So there was, of course, there was no one there to film it. But there are there are so many people who've seen that video, which they haven't. It's some sort of mass, um, I don't know, mass hysteria. It's very strange because um, basically this is how um, how dictators can cause can cause people to remember things that didn't actually happen. If you say something enough times, then it will have happened, even though it didn't. And this is a, this is extremely dangerous and very very strange part of what our memories are. Our memories are unreliable. And uh, we we have to come face to face with that. Yeah, this is um, where the term gaslighting comes into it, which is like you know programming someone with a version of reality that is object. I know you don't like the word objective. We'll come to that, but is objectively unreal. But the person comes to believe that version of reality because it's been pounded into them by someone who's influential or coercive as it were. And you saw that, for example, the classic example of this is in Orwell's novel 1984, where you have state operatives whose job it is to sort of rewrite the past to fit in with the current agenda. Oh, yes, that happens all the time. It happened with the, with, with the Soviet Union all the time. They, they just inked people out. But some pe- person did, didn't exist. And then he didn't exist. He's, he's not in the pictures. Nobody talks about him. Eventually, you begin to wonder, did that person exist? Obviously not. I mean, I, I can't see him anywhere. This is, uh, our, our, our memories are extremely fragile and, 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 uh, you know, sort of dangerous. There, there have been experiments with, um, uh, uh, Elizabeth Loftus, for example, that, that they could, in the lab, put in memories and people like, for example, somebody was lost, uh, on a beach and, uh, the person will come out of that lab and be 100% convinced that he or she was lost on that beach. 100% that, that, that she should, they would argue with you that it definitely happened. So we have to be very, very careful when we say, I know exactly what happened. I have an objective memory. There is no objective memory. There just isn't. To come on to objectivity itself, um, one of the keys for me in kind of understanding our experience of time is the vast difference between objective concepts of time, uh, sort of what you might call sort of an external time, you know, clock time that does what it does no matter how you feel about it. So if you have an experience of getting up in the morning, having an awful day for whatever reason, it feels like it really drags and you go to bed at night, the 12 hours or whatever that your clock, perhaps back on your bedside table, that that measured or recorded that doesn't become any shorter or longer or nothing happens to that whatsoever. So there's a difference between that and our subjective experience. Perhaps this would be a good point for you to maybe elaborate a little bit why you don't like the term objective. Okay, that's um, possibly the centre of my of my thesis and it's controversial and people don't particularly like it. Um, when you talk about something objective... It means basically that it is in a, in a place which is beyond us. Because a, a, a objective cannot be subjective. And if we all have, let's say, a sub, that we talked about memory. If we all have a subjective memory, 
then for somebody to say, yes, but something did really happen, something objectively happened, I would have to say, well, that is untestable. I, um, wh where, where is this thing that happened? Where is it? Who, who knows about it? And when you say, well, it's there somewhere, I say, well, I'm sorry, but that's not scientific and it doesn't mean anything to me. And, and if you then say to me, well, a million people remember it. I say, yes, but that doesn't work on, ma on majorities. I mean, knowledge is, for example, we talk about uh, objective knowledge, but, um, but there is no such thing as objective knowledge because knowledge is what we remember. And here we get back again to, to memory because as time goes on, knowledge changes. So to say there's objective knowledge, I would have to say, well, where is it? Show me it. Well, of course you can't show me it because you've got a, you've got a subjective view of knowledge. This goes with, uh, with, I mean, ev everything. If, if we, if we, for example, uh, well, we looked at memory. In my book, I talk about uh, spinach. Remember Popeye? Yes. And we've got Popeye and we all know that, um, that, uh, spinach has got an enormous amount of iron, right? It was, um, this is, this was knowledge. This was because in 1870, there was a German scientist who, uh, made a mistake in transcribing the, the data. He said, uh, there were 35 milligrams instead of 3.5 milligrams in a, in a portion, right? It was simply somebody put in the wrong dot. Now, that was eight, 1870. Since then, they made all these films, et cetera, et cetera. It was corrected in 1937 by the way, uh, the same year that a statue was erected in a, I think it was called Crystal City in Texas, where the, which was a spinach growing industry, and they put up a statue of uh, Popeye. My, my question is, um, was, was it true, is it true that um, spinach has a high percentage of iron? Now, whatever you say here, you're, you're in trouble because if you say, no, it wasn't true. And I would say, ah, so, so at the time when people said it was true, that has, that has changed. If you say it, it was, it was true in case what happens today when we are 100% sure that things are true? We cannot be so arrogant to say that we in 2019 have found the truth and that nothing that comes after it would change it. If we say that that was not true, then we have to be honest enough to say that whatever we're told today, even about science and about whatever we are told to be fact, we have to be honest enough to say we don't know that's fact because next year or the year after or 10 years from now, somebody will show that what we believe to be fact is not fact. So that is would be objective truth, which does not exist. Objective truth would have to be impeccable, untouchable, somewhere outside, almost, and this is where people get annoyed with me, believing in God, because God is also outside of ourselves, impeccable, untouchable, and absolutely true. Whereas uh, atheists will say the same about the truth. They don't, when I go and give talks and I say, make that point, and most of my talks are with uh, atheists. They don't, they don't like that example at all. 
all, all I'm saying is we've got to be very, very careful when we talk about objective truth, especially in science, because science, although some scientists say they're looking for the truth, I'm very, very much against that. When we're not looking for the truth, we are looking for the best explanation we get according to the knowledge that we have today, and that uh, tomorrow and a better explanation will come along, and then we will change our knowledge and our facts to suit the better, the better uh, explanations we have. So basically, um, ob objectivity is something that I'm really against, and it started off from my look into into time, and that whatever I looked at, if somebody tells me that is objectively true, I immediately stop and say, well, can you please show me how you can test that? Well, atheism, now you mention it, I find to be a, basically an untenable position because how can you disprove the existence of some kind of higher power or entity or whatever somebody might call God? But anyway, but does all of this mean then that the Earth was flat at a time because people believed it was? I, I don't think so. Okay, well, we're coming back to spinach. At the time when people thought it was flat, for them it was flat. That's That's the information they had. Coming back now, we know it wasn't, but that doesn't mean that we can we can do that retrospectively, retroactively. But you know, somebody who believes that the Earth is flat at the time believed it because those are the facts he had. That was true, true with a small t. Saying it wasn't true now it is doesn't mean very much. We can only deal with the facts we have, and 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 we need to be um, big enough to say that we do not have all the facts today of everything. We can't. Okay, so, in well, yeah, in that case, you get to the point where uh, my grandfather used to say, don't think, no, and on that basis, uh, we basically know nothing because things could always be subject to change. And there's been very many things, uh, flat earth being just one of them, that we thought were immutable and eternal, and actually, oh, something came along and it's not the case. So, is is that your central point then, basically, in this, that what can we say is true because it may be subject to change? You know, people, for example, are quite happy now to say the earth is not flat, okay? So that's one quality uh, of it that it does not have, and they can then say what the earth currently is, is that somehow subject to revision as well? I mean, you don't have to use that particular example of the Earth as such, but these sorts of things that we feel what could possibly come along to change this, are those also uh, suspect? Since we are human, all we can think about is what might possibly happen in the future. We don't know what's going to happen in the future. We have no idea. The only, the only time we know whether the future happened is when it happened, when the future is the past. The only thing, the only thing we can know is that, that, that we're mortal. And we as individuals don't even know that either until we get there. And when we get there, we won't know it because we won't be there to know about it. The, the point is, we do not know what's going to happen. We, we can know, in inverted commas, that new things will come along. We will know next year when we look back at what we talked about now, that the things we talked about just weren't, in inverted commas, true. At the moment, they are, they are true. And as soon as we talk about something that is, we have to be very, very careful because we're talking about something that is does not move, stasis, which I mentioned quite a bit in in the book. As uh, considering that everything is changed, and this is I mentioned earlier on, that everything changes all the time. 
so that there is never a point where we can say, there it is, that's it, because the it has moved along. It's what I talked about the now. Constant, and if, if you want to say what time is, which I don't, if you want to say that, you can say that time is change, and that that never changes, and that always changes. The, the, the not changing is the is the always change. You know, R Richard Feynman, who is you know a, a genius. Uh, he, he, I remember now, he wondered why the true laws of nature are interpretable interpretable in many d different ways. I mean, this is a genius. He didn't understand because he he, he was a genius. He saw physics as it was so he thought he couldn't understand that people interpret in different ways but but surely surely that is obvious because it's humans that are looking at the laws it is humans who who can only see the laws in the way that humans see it they can't see it in any other way so um you know, uh, uh, human beings looking at laws which are true in the eyes of the beholder. Laws, physics, laws of physics, physics cannot be objectively true because they are put out by human beings who have interpretations. They, I, I see no way of getting out of that, however uncomfortable it is, however much, and, and, and I know that people want to believe in absolute truth, in objectivity. It is. It feels safe that you know that somewhere out there is the truth. I'm. I've all I've got to do is to get to it. But but I'm not. I'm not in the business of making people feel safe. I I, I have not written a self-help book to 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 help you in in life. I I as a philosopher would like to show how we need to think about different ways of looking at the world. If we think about different ways of looking at the world, we cannot be in control of people telling us there is something objective. You, you, you know, um, the people who know objectively what is true are uh, dictators. They know. And you, you, you mentioned 1984. They know. And if they know, that means that everybody else does not know. And if you do not know the absolute truth, in that case, there is something wrong with you. And if you do not believe in the absolute truth, we're going to put you to prison or worse. That is one of the dangers of ob objectivity. That's why I'm so very, very um, strong against the whole nature of objectivity. Because, look, I mean, we know that time is subjective. We, we, we know it. I mean, Einstein showed us there is no... There is no now. There is no one now. My now is different, apart from all the things that we talked about before. My now is different from somebody who's traveling at close to the, to the speed of light. His time, his time is different from the, from the rate that my time goes. I mean, we, we now know, in inverted commas, we now know this. We might know something else in the future. So I don't want to be caught out on, on that particular thing. But, but as far as we know today, that the evidence that we have and the fact, the facts in inverted commas we have today tell us that there is no one, one now. Okay. So that is, that is, that is, um, that's how science works. And that's, I think, how we need to work and understand that we are in continual movement. And being in, in continual movement means, means that, that we can rely on ourselves 
and not. But in, but in that in that case, I wouldn't have to now speak about the self, which I I don't know if you want to go there at this moment. Well, I can't remember what rate it happens at. It probably happens at different rates throughout the body. But you know, our cells renew themselves uh, to the extent that there may be one organ in your body that is actually completely different. Uh, from what it was 10, 20 years ago, it's completely renewed itself. None of the cells are the same as they were. Uh, you think you mentioned in your book about restoring classic cars. If you put in a new engine, new doors, new bonnet, new seats, at what point do, does it ever cease to be the car it was before? Or if it's 100% new parts, is it, is it, you know, in what sense is it different? In what sense is it the same? The height of Everest changes. It goes up, it goes down. The difference between the coast of England and France, that changes. And you talk about the speed of light. As I understand it, there are certain apparently immutable laws of nature that actually uh, shift and scientists have to recalibrate their experiments to take this into account. Yes, definitely. That's that's the point because we are humans, as we mentioned in the beginning. We can only speak about what we can speak about from where we are, in, in, in literally and figuratively. We are in in a place, each one of us individually, where no no one else is, no one. So that uh, each of us looks at everything in a different way. Each of us. This is this is quite scary. But uh, I mentioned the book. If you look at an object, an apple, I think I mentioned that. If you look at an apple and I look at an apple, we'll be looking at it at different times because it the the the, the speed that light gets to you and gets to me is different. So basically. We are not in the same time, but we are close enough for it to work. That reminds me of something that I've, I've often considered, actually, that due to subjective nature of our five senses, and I, I always like to add a sixth one, gut instinct or intuition or whatever, but due to the subjective nature of those, we're all li- living in different worlds. You and I are not in the same world, and for a lot of people, that, that objective reality out there is really, really important. And in fact, all these concepts of time we've been talking about feed into this craving, this craving for certainty that human beings have. You know, we want to know how things are. We like the idea of fixed reality. We're not good with change. We're not good with uncertainty. And yet that's all there is. The fact that we're not good at something and we continue not being good at something doesn't mean that we should continue not being good at something. You know, um, the fact that things change and that Thing we cannot rely on things. I mean, we can to a certain extent, but it's, it's very approximate. We know when we get up in the morning that things that were there the night before will will be there. I mean, we assume things, and that's how that's how we uh, continue. But um, the point that we that we do live in different worlds to put that under the carpet and say no, everything's hunky dory, I think is problematic in that we're driving ourselves crazy. Oh, if you look at the number of self-help books there are in shops telling you how things are or should be, it's quite astonishing that there are people who will tell you how you should be in order to be normal. I mean, if you think of that, that's completely mad. The point that that this thing about um, we all get on together and let's let's live in harmony, this harmony... And this is something that is, I think, controversial in, in my book, where I say that harmony does not exist. Dissonance exists. And I, I'm, I mentioned the thing about going, going forward in time, but in, but part of us is going back 
that is dissonance and we live with it. Now, if, if we believe that harmony is what should be and we can never actually get to harmony, we are, we are pretty nervous. Now, instead of that, why not, why not look at the fact that things are not exactly in harmony? Things are approximate. They are fine. We get along together while things are approximate. When we start arguing is when we go down to the nitty gritty. Now, for example, I mentioned this in the book. Uh, lawyers make money from this. If they may, if they make a uh, contract and, and you say a commercial contract, then you'd sit on it for hours and hours and hours and every, you work out every single word. It's all agreed, right? Everything's great. You go away. A year later, there's an argument. Everybody goes to the contract, and this contract that a year before had been very clear is suddenly not clear. You're, you're going down in resolution to the individual words, which were okay when you when you moved back, when you, everything was okay, we were getting on. But when you look at that contract, you say, "But but that that doesn't mean that. I meant something else." And then you then you're then you're in a fight. This is what happens between countries and borders. Everything is okay. You know, if you have a border between countries, everything is okay because it's sort of approximate. It doesn't go to every particular stone. But once you have countries who argue about borders, they will go to every pebble and say, that pebble belongs to my side. They will never, ever agree. And that that's what I mean about harmony. I think harmony is um, is an illusion. I mean, the universe does not work on harmony. The, the universe works on things working approximately good enough for us all to understand. It's the moment that we look, if you, if you look at a, if you go and look at a piece of art, you look at it from a distance, it's beautiful. You can see the church or whatever it is. You move closer and closer and closer and you realize that's not a church, that bits of lines, etc. That's not where I want to look at that picture. I want to move back. I want to see it from where it looks good, but it's approximate. Now, if you go closer, you might say, well, that's clearer because you're getting closer, but you're not. You're making it unclear. So my, my point near the end of the book is stop worrying about harmony because harm, just the search for harmony drives everybody mad. That's what all the books about. Let's, let's look for harmony. So when you, when you just said that, um, you know, we got to, uh, you, we get along, et cetera, et cetera and, and let's, let's, let's all believe that things are, there is something objective out there that we can get to, but, but, but we don't because it's that objective thing that we all argue about. Where, where, where is objective morality? For example, if we, if we come to that, how can we talk about objective morality when as soon as you dig into that, you'll find, you'll find problems. And morality about uh, thou shalt not kill. That sounds okay. Of course nobody wants to kill, but what happens if somebody bursts into your house and wants to kill you or your family? Will you then say, well, I'm not going to kill. You will kill. So, it, it, you know, as soon as you get down to basics, you've got to say to yourself, hang on, it's not that simple. Objectivity is not something that we can test. It's, it's not something that's there, and it doesn't help us to say there's something out there that we can't see, but we know it is there. Well, it's interesting, a couple of the phrases that pop to mind when people are trying to gain clarity on a subject, they'll quite often say, uh, oh, we should drill down into this, look closer, or we should zoom out 
and I more often find myself saying, let's just zoom out and look at the big picture to get clarity on this. But people use those two, two different approaches, you know, to drill into something. Let's drill down into the numbers, see what's really going on. Or no, hang on, let's let's zoom out, see what's really going on. Yeah, definitely. This is what happens in uh, uh, physics. They're drilling down into finding smaller and smaller and smaller particles as if finding the smallest particle will tell us what the what life is about. It 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 won't happen, even if we do find it, which we won't. But we're we're get, we're drilling down to find to find uh, what the meaning of life is, and it doesn't tell us anything about the meaning of life whatsoever, or what or what material it is composed of. It it doesn't tell us anything. It just tells us that there's just more to come, driving driving ourselves matter. I'm not saying don't do it, but uh, but as you say, drilling down does not help us get to any sort of uh, well-being and knowing what it's all about. Uh, that is definitely problematic. Well, you can see how many problems are caused in the worlds of religion and politics, to name just a couple. Uh, you could probably add to that economics and science as well. When people start to bandy words like the truth around, you know, how things are, you know, it doesn't matter what your opinion is, this remains unchanged, you know, and you get a lot of that in those spheres that I've just mentioned. Definitely, definitely. And we, and we have, we, ha we have to be careful. It's not, um, uh, people say, you know, why, why do you bother, why do you bother with these, with these things? And, 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 and the point is, um, look, I'm for people thinking. I think, the more we think, the better off we'll be. We will be not in control of people who know. And the reason I write the books I write, and I, I try and write them in language that is understandable, I try, I say, that, it, that is understandable for the so-called man in the street, so that so people will say, well, look, I don't agree with you, which is fine, because I would, I, in everything I've said up to now, you will understand that I could never say, this is the way things are. What I just said, that's the way, that would completely undermine my own theory in actual fact. So what I'm saying is that whatever somebody tells you, think about it. If you think about it, you are in control. If you don't think about it, you are not. And that is, that is an extremely in, uh, important part of, uh, of, of what, what I say. Defining, defining things are, are very difficult. We, we talked about uh, defining time. I mean, uh, we can define um, a tree or, or a thought or, or a piece of paper, but we can't define time because time is part of us. In order to, to define something, this goes to Gödel's um, theories, that in order to define something, you cannot do it if it's part of the same set. So that... The reason we can't define consciousness is because we would have to move out of consciousness in order to define it. We are, we can see a tree. We can't see consciousness and we can't see time because time is change. Time is constant, continuous change. That is its effect. But if you want to say that's what it is, there it is. It's, it's, it's time and time is us and we are time. That's why it's so fascinating. And that's why, that's why I, that's why I dealt with it. Look, it took me five years to write this book uh, because there was so much in it and, and I found so much and so much about humans. And the fact is that time is human. Uh, look at how we tick. We tick. Let's look at how we do it. 
Yeah, I mean, I didn't realise it had taken you so long actually to, to, to write the book, but it, it's it's quite dense. Actually, I, I find reading it that there's almost no sentence, never mind a paragraph. There's almost no sentence within it that doesn't have some kind of implication. Uh, so you know, it takes a long time to get through because you have a lot to to consider. I've been talking about politics and religion, society, how we lead our lives. And there's this saying that, you know, if those who forget the past are sort of doomed to repeat it, whatever. And so much of future action and planning, whether it's on an individual or collective basis, is orientated around what happened before, what worked, what didn't work, you know, what we liked from the past, what we didn't like. And in a way, and this, I suppose this is where these, the nowists, as you call them, are coming from, particularly in in the new age or self-help arena, is that they see it as past and the future effectively don't exist if we choose to say it that way and that we are some you know tabula rasa clean slates each day born anew which is a, a philosophy that i've definitely uh, encouraged in others you know who've, who've been struggling in life it's just say like just put that behind you you're not what's happened to you today you can start afresh as it were but it's very interesting to consider all of the planning and all of the action set out for the future based on a past that in itself may be uh, extremely questionable. Yeah, you made a, a lot of very interesting points that I could talk about for about an hour or so, which I don't have time for, but that, some very, very interesting points. I'll see if I can remember them bit by bit. The point is, that however much we are told we can start again, of course we can't because we never start from nothing. We are we are what we bring with us, even if we try and forget it. I mean, even if it's uh, 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 genetics or things that happen to us, to say that nothing happens to us and we can start again, I think is an illusion, and I think it's quite dangerous. That's what uh, self-help books are, are full of. But, you're, but as I say, I don't, um, I don't want to talk that much against... New Age, although I do quite quite a bit of it in my book, but I took most of it out, otherwise the book would have been would have been much bigger than it is. But the the point you made about the past being dodgy is very is very very interesting because when we say you can learn from the past, that itself is problematic because the past we don't actually know really what happened in the past. Now, the past being different for every single person is not only different for every, but because it's different for every single person, the past is unknown as an objective past. We can't say that 100% happened in all its details and we can learn from that because each person sees it differently and each person talks about the past, dif- the past differently. I mean, history is a, a very strange, very strange subject to study because it depends who wrote it. It depends when he or she wrote it. Uh, and it depends not only when, but the situation they're in and their perspective on life is when they wrote about the past. Now, now not only does it get more, uh, murky the further back it is, that's understandable. But in actual fact, it is just as murky. And when we look at something yesterday, we talked about this earlier, because we are have our own personalities and we look at things in our way according to where we are and according to where we've been. That is the that is the backward moving now that keeps on 
picking up other stuff. So that when we, when we look back in the past and say, and say, look, let's leave that behind. We're not leaving it behind. We are, we are taking with us a past that we really don't know what happened. So that, that we are unsteady, but it doesn't matter if we understand that we're unsteady. That's, that's my point. If we don't do that, we're burying ourselves in the sand. What Tolles says about there is, there is no past. If you think about the past, you can't, you can't live, live in, in, in the present. That's very, very nice. They're very beautiful words. But I, I just, I just don't, I don't get it. And don't, don't think about the future because you'll miss all the wonderful things. But if you've got rent to pay next week, it's pointless saying I'm not going to think about, about the future because there it is. You've got to pay that rent. Let, let's not take our self-help book and sit there and think everything, everything's great. I don't have to think about the future. All, all these things is, is part of the continued, continual change that's going on and that we have to realize that we are part of. If we do realize that we are part of change, we, we might be better off. We might be. We're certainly not better off the way we are today. Everybody go, going for harmony. As far as I can see, the world is in a terrible mess. Just a little standalone thought here regarding the past. Have you considered any of the implications uh, of the internet age for memory? Because we have all these digitized memories, digitized lives. We hear quite a lot of commentary in the media about Facebook, for example, and, you know, other social media platforms, how much of our information they have and nothing's ever deleted and it's there forever. And actually, if you look at it, you know, maybe it isn't actually, but there's tremendous potential there in all of that stored data to recall the past, but also at the stroke of a key, things could be rewritten, completely erased. And I find people increasingly relying on these digitized memories, you know, these digital lives that they have as a way to themselves not retain information. I think you make a very, very good point. Because of all this information, and I call it information, that's very important, it's, a lot of it is false. Uh, it, it, the situation is much worse than it was. If before we got uh, news from one or two sources, and uh, news, fake news, etc., n- n- news was always fake because it, it's always filtered. Somebody always gives it to us, right? Whether it's a newspaper, whether it's uh, whether it's a television or radio, it's always filtered because there's so much news. They decide what they want to give us and how how they want us to see it. But that's that was that was a problem in the past. The problem today is there is so much information out there, most of which is junk. Most of it is most of it. Uh, let's say a lot of it is written by people who have. An, uh, uh, an agenda or something to say. There are, there are bots out there that are, that we all know about that thousands of accounts that don't exist that are putting false information out there. A normal human being has no way of, 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 of deciding which of that is in inverted commas correct or approximately correct in my, in my terms, we have no idea, and you're absolutely right, that the, the stuff that's streaming into us is completely knocking us out. And, uh, I don't know where all that's going to lead, but where the, the, the amount of information that's coming in is, 
is so enormous that we have no chance of finding our feet in, in all this. All, all the better for us to think clearly of what is going on, if that's at all possible. We might be reaching a stage of a surfeit of, of news and that, you know, there are people who are actually, uh, just tuning out. I, I know quite a few people who say to me, listen, there's so much stuff coming in. I don't even listen to the news anymore. Now, now, whether that's good or not, on one hand, it's good because they're not hearing a lot of junk and fake news. That's a new term and it's not really new, but, but, but they're not hearing anything, which means they're left to their own devices to work out their own things. And that comes from their own memories. And we've already talked about that. So I'm, I'm, I don't think we're better off. I think we're much, much worse off than we were. I find my personal experience, I had a conversation recently about when you relocate yourself temporarily, classic example being going on holiday, how your perceptions change. I find that being away, being out of my normal routine to the extent that there is one, being somewhere else, my perception of time changes, lacking the information overload that you just mentioned actually expands my feeling of time yes that's yeah that's uh yes that's that's very very good have you noticed when you go on holiday the first few days go very very slowly and suddenly whoosh it's 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 over it's finished there's there's all the amazing things happen happen with time with within us and uh, you're absolutely right that uh if you if you if you relax then time expands as it were of course it doesn't expand it expands subjectively and the, and the and the point about the human being within time is the subjective look at the world our our perspective is all that if you go with somebody on a holiday it doesn't mean that that you'll both be seeing time in the same way you might not for you it might be going slow more slowly for the person you're with, it might be going faster. There's no way that we can coordinate that, by the way, because we're looking at the apple from different places. It all, it's all perspective. It's all human perspective. There's a quote in your book, there is no consciousness without time. That led me to question what, if anything, is fundamental. Can anything exist outside of time? You know, can that even be conceptually imagined, as in the concept of nothing, for example, which for most people is a mind bender? Oh, you got me onto a long talk now. The book before this one, <laughs> the book, the book before this one was called Nothing Matters. I wrote about about nothing, and so I don't want to go into that because that really will take a long time. But but you make you make an excellent point. I I divided uh, nothing into, into two. I don't think that's been done before. Um, there is uh, nothing which I call nothingness, which is the absence of something, the absence of um, of uh, let's say a space or uh, silence. These are all absences of something. The absences between events that 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 make the event what they are. Right, but but there is the absolute nothing that you just mentioned, which is the absence of everything. Now that absolute uh, that absolute absence of everything is impossible because the absence of everything is the absence of ourselves as well. That is the state of being dead, not dying, but dead. To be dead, there is nothing. There just is nothing. 
And it's not the same as being asleep, even a real, real um, deep sleep where you don't dream, because you wake up from sleep and you know that time has passed, and it was purely an absence of consciousness. But the but being dead, being dead, is nothing. At that point, we cannot go any further. That's it. That's that is the edge, and that is that is the reason that actually. When I reached that point at the end of the nothing book, I reached, I realized I'd gone as far as I can possibly go and I have to go back. Otherwise I'd go insane. But this, this, um, the absence of everything is something that will fear. It's not the dying as much as the not being. The not being is the complete and utter absence of ourselves. I had to turn around from that edge and talk about everything. And everything is time. Now you, now you know the secret of why I went from nothing to time. Well, you mentioned uh, an author out of uh, New York, I think, Jim Holt, in your book, uh, his book, Why Does the World Exist? And I, I did, I've got an entire uh, show with him based on that book. If listeners are interested, they can just put Jim Holt into the search box, legalizefreedom.com. But when I was talking with him, I was saying that when early in my life, when I was trying to think about the concept of nothingness or an ultimate nothing, Ultimately, the reason for this was thinking about the origin of, of the universe. That even when I was trying to con- conceive of a pre-state, pre-Big Bang state, it was still kind of like, like conceptualized as, as, as an empty vessel. That is to say, there was still a vessel. I just, I couldn't, I couldn't get to absolute nothing. Correct. Correct. Absolutely correct. I was on a radio program with Jim Holt, uh, about two years ago, and we argued about this. But, um, you, you, you're right, because I mentioned this there. Yeah, whatever we imagine, it's reimagining. This is this is the thing about the absence of everything, because we can't imagine that. We can only imagine it being here, imagining it. It's like it's like watching a film without us being in it. But that's us watching the film. And basically, we can't imagine not imagining. Humans can't do that. So uh, talking about uh, before the universe is us talking about some, something, note, something before the universe. And you're absolutely right. The only way we can do it is by Im- imagining something empty. But that empty is something. It's not nothing because we are there in order to, in order for us to think about something. It's a, it's a, it's a very, very deep, vicious circle, but you're absolutely right. Before there was the world, the, the universe, there is something that we imagine there was. Even if we say there wasn't, there was. Two points I want to throw at you. They're unrelated uh, to each other, uh, not entirely unrelated to what we've said up to this point, but I just wasn't quite sure where else to, to squeeze them in. Uh, do you think that psychic phenomena such as remote viewing, which is quite well documented and the reality of which I, I accept, which enables people to look at events independent of time and space and other phenomena like telepathy or precognition, do they say anything about your your theory on all of this? Well, yes, I um, I hope you don't expect me to agree with you about that one. No, I don't. Uh, I don't think there is such a thing as telepathy. I don't think it's been documented. It has not been documented in the uh, in uh, in the lab. And uh, telepathy works very, very well afterwards. Uh, somebody phones and says, and then you say, yeah, I was just thinking about you. 
but uh, when were you thinking about that person? And five minutes before, ten minutes, yesterday you thought about it as well, or just now? It's, uh, telepathy has something to do with the way I write about the future. The future works, as I think I mentioned before, when it's happened. Then, then you know there was a future. Before that, you, you cannot say what the future will be. There are probabilities. Possibility, probabilities, like in quantum mechanics, there are probabilities. But until you get to that spot when it's been, you can't tell. Now, telepathy is one of these great things that it's all very nice when you say, I did think about that before. But now we have to do telepathy and say, well, in 10 minutes, uh, this thing is going to happen. That they can't do. Te telepathy and all the other things you mentioned, I do, do not accept as phenomena. And, and this is one of the things, by the way, that I can get, and I hope I'm not getting you angry, because I can get people very angry very quickly when I talk about telepathy with people who believe in it. And so I'm very, very careful. But since we're on a radio show and you can't really get angry with me because I'm your guest. So I'm going to, I just want to mention that about telepathy. I do mention telepathy in the book. I mention, uh, de déjà vu. I, I explain it in the terms of the moving now. I explain it and why, and I, there are lots of things I explain about why we can't, if everything is changing, why we can't see it actually change, but only see it after it's changed. I explain all that. So that, that is in answer to your question, the answer is no, I don't think those things exist as phenomena. However much people want to, however much people want to believe it and understand they want to believe it in the same way that people want to believe in an objective truth, objective morality, an objective God, an objective whatever, objective science, objective truth, an objective telepathy. I don't accept any of those. Be through the theory that I that I have worked out. Oh, that's fine. I mean, you say that I can't get angry. I mean, it's called legalized freedom. I can do I I can do whatever I want. You can do whatever you want. But I, I, it takes it takes a lot to get me angry. And anyway, I I don't have I don't really have a big like dog in the fight with this one. It's just something. Some of these phenomena I've looked at, and I do think there's something there. Um, however, there's also a very there's a very good way of dealing with the question of whether it's with uh, precognition or deja vu, of sorting out the exceptional examples from those, you know, all the times that something happened that you didn't pay attention to. There, There is, I won't get into it now, but there's a good way of addressing that. Anyway, the, I mentioned there was two points I wanted to throw at you. The second one is actually just basically two words. One of the first things that comes up when you look at people's thoughts about time or discussion about time, it's very, very easy to get to time travel and whether it's uh, popularized, of course, in science fiction, and there's been so much theoretical discussion about it over, over the years. Personally, I think it's almost like an, an erroneous question. It's kind of like an interesting scenario to explore in a fictional story. But from a scientific point of view, it's just a, it's just a complete non-starter. It's absolute irrelevance as far as I can see. But I just wanted to mention it because a lot of people, when they start talking it, you know, in a, a deeper way about time, start thinking about the past and the future, how accessible they might be within our consciousness. And then, of course, physically. And part of the reason for this, of course, is because of the phenomenon of time dilation. Sort of hinted at earlier, you know, if you're an object or a person 
in a spacecraft, for example, traveling close to the speed of light. If they traveled away from the Earth and then back to the Earth and the journey took five years, then they might find that everyone on the Earth had actually experienced 50 years worth of aging in the meantime. This is one point of science that I've argued with physicists about. I try not to argue with physicists too much, but this particular point of time travel is, abs and I agree with you, is absolute nonsense. But uh, from my point of view, I would like to just go into it a, a, a little bit. I, I, I think that the, the, the obsession with time travel, and it, and it is an obsession, is that um, it, it, it's like we, it, it's like rattling the cage of the future. It, it's, um, it is time that we can't do anything about. It, it, it's like a perpetually dangling bait. Uh, the future is frustratingly always ahead of us. Now, if we can actually travel in time, we can actually get there, right? It's, um, now th this is, this is definitely problematic. Um, look, Einstein's special law of relativity adds, uh, a theoretical hope to the possibility since it shows that time runs faster or slower depending on one's location in space. This is, this is what you, is what you mentioned. I think it was uh, physicist Brian Greene who states that time travel is absolutely possible. Um, and uh, Brian Cox um, goes into wonderful stuff about time travel, which I consider absolute nonsense. But um, the point is that we're all told that when you travel at um, close to the speed of sound, time, time moves at a different rate. Now that is not true. Time for you, for you traveling at close to the speed of, of, uh, time, the spe speed of, uh, light, sorry, uh, stays on your clock as it was elsewhere. Your clock does not whiz past faster. It does not whiz faster. Your time does not change. It changes only in relation to somebody else's time, and we've been we've been talking we've been talking about that. So, if you speed away to the stars at close to the speed of light, and return after three three years, right? Although everyone on Earth will be, I think it's sixty-seven years older, you will still have aged only three years. Now, you have not gone forward in time, and somebody in the Somebody who's now 67 years older will not say to you, what's it, what's it like in the future? You'll say, what are you talking about? I haven't gone to the future. I'm three years older. You can't say to the, to the person who's 67 years old, what was it like? What was it like in, the, in, in your future where you think was my future? Say, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm 67 years older. So nothing has happened in the personal time span. You, you will still be only three years older than when you left. Now, unfortunately, despite the fact that everyone you knew on Earth will be 67 years older than when you left three years previously, it would not mean that you would live longer than you would have had had you stayed on Earth. You would still live, live your, your whatever, 80, 90, 100 years, right? You would, you would, you have not gained anything. The others who are 67 years old are just 76, 70, 67 years 
years um, older. So um, I, all, all I'm saying is clocks do not slow down. We have been fed this myth about we can forward travel forward in time. Um, this is not true. We do not move forward in time. Uh, the time is relative to, to something else. The, the fact that um, that um, that Brian Cox says that uh, moving clocks move slower, they don't. Clocks do not do not slow down. So I got right. I got quite excited by that because I've had I've had so many arguments. And when I when I say to to physicists, our personal clock does not go faster, they will eventually say, "Yes, you're right, but." So in the wonderful imaginative science fiction film, The Planet of the Apes, the astronaut's journey away from... Spoiler alert, by the way, if you've never seen Planet of the Apes <laughs> and you want to see Planet of the Apes, then just stop listening, skip forward like a couple of minutes. So they travel away from the Earth and they land on what they think is another planet. Ultimately, it's the Earth. And they find it radically changed. They haven't really aged very much at all. They've been out in space. I can't remember how long the journey took, but let's say a few months. But Earth has moved forward however many decades, you know, 100 years, whatever, and things are radically changed. So in that sense, they have gone, you know, into the future, but only in the sense that they're back on Earth at uh, experiencing the Earth as it was, uh, sorry, as it is, which they would not normally have expected to see, because if they'd remained on Earth, they wouldn't have lived long enough to see the Earth change like that. That might feel like the future to them, but it's not. I agree with you 100%. I couldn't have put it put it better. So, science fiction is, is wonderful, because it can talk about things that uh, that in theory could happen, but in fact it's science fiction. It's not science, it's science fiction. Unfortunately, science, when it comes to thing, things like this, when you've got a colourful person that is on TV and tell us that we can travel in time and they'll show you that, that you can do it, this is very nice. It's, it's not science. It is some sort of fiddle. And the, 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 the planet of, of the apes is very, very nice. It, it, uh, it makes us think about time, about, about time moving, moving differently elsewhere. It didn't move differently on that, on the earth, by the way, that, or where, where the apes are. It did not move differently at all. It moved the way it was, it, it, it moved. The time did not move differently for you either, for, for the people who, who went to that, to the planet of the apes, this, our planet. Nobody's time had changed and nobody had gone to the future or gone, gone to the past. It's a very nice way of looking at, at time um uh being relative to other time but i but but i think that scientists should stop feeding us this business about it's possible to travel in time it doesn't matter how fast how fast we go we will not know what the future is you will not be able to come back and tell somebody i know the numbers of the football pools do it because you you didn't travel to their to their future at all well, just as we bring things to a close for today, Ron, I just want to, you, you mentioned trends in the book, things moving in a certain direction, which based on the past, we could expect to continue into the future, uh, whether it's the price of oil or the spread of democracy or the rise in, I don't know, autism amongst children, whatever it happens to be, trends. There was a trend in the 1970s for uh, flared trousers and kipper ties that ended and we seem to be constantly getting caught out by ending 
trends, you know, the future not being what we, not being what, what we expected it to be. And I wonder to what extent that's just purely on wishful thinking. You know, we, we would like, for example, there to be unlimited free energy or unlimited affordable energy for us to power industrial civilization in the future. Therefore, that has to be that way because that's what we want. And how much of it is based on misreading, misinterpretation, all sorts of anything with mess in the front of it that you care to mention about the past? I definitely agree with you that it, that it's a lot of it is wishful thinking. And a lot of it is the opposite as well, that we think we are, we are doomed because certain things are happening, but, but we have, we are constantly being shown that trends did not, did not happen. And this is part of my, the part of, of, of my theory of time, which is the future. We never, ever know what's going to happen. And a, and a trend says that if things continue as they are now, X is going to happen. And X often does not happen, but we don't know that until it has or hasn't happened. So trends are uh, what a lot of people make their money of, of um, uh, the price of oil. we got no idea what's going to happen. We think we do, but then, then strange things happen. And uh, trends are just, they definitely will fulfill different uh, f- feeling willful definitely uh, what we what we what we're hanging on again is the point of we want to know something definitely and if we have a trend it's safe because if we go along like this this will happen but in actual fact the trend not only we don't know what will happen it is based on what happened in the past or to put it better what we think happened in the past now, if that didn't exactly happen the way we thought it would happen, of course the, the future won't be the way we think it'll happen because it's based on something that is untrue. And I don't like the word untrue, but you know what I mean. On things that may or may not happen so that our future is, is as unsteady as our past because, because we, we, what we have is an unsteady past and we don't really know what it is. And based on that unsteady past, we have a future that we can't possibly know because we, because it's based on a past that's, that's completely unsteady. We, we, we can never, we can never get to fruition of the past, which would be the future. We will always see the past and we will never see the past and those trends meaning anything other than, uh, the future of what might have been. And that's it, un- unfortunately. Well, I just want to close with a thought preceded by a quote from uh, Henri Bergson, and that's it features in your book. And the quote is, uh, The idea of the future pregnant with an infinity of possibilities is more fruitful than the future itself. And this is why we find more charm in hope than in possession, in dreams than in reality. Now, that sounds tragic. It seems almost like we're conde- condemned by that which makes us exceptional. You know, why can't we just be like animals? Why can't we just not think about time why can't we just plod through existence you know eat sleep reproduce and if evolution happens behind or beneath us then so be it Uh, i wonder and this is highly speculative but uh, the striving and the pushing and the drive that we seem to have as a species which gets us into so much trouble and brings us so much anguish and many people try to avoid and do without i wonder if it is ultimately evolutionary and that all of our reading and misreading of time and all of our issues around of it are part of 
pushing forward? I think it's a good thing. It is the way we progress. It is the push, and it's uh, evolutionary. I, I think you're right in your in your speculation. It is the only way that we can move forward is by wanting to move forward. Um, if we if we sat back and said, uh, I'm now going to sit on a beach and not do anything, if we all said that, that would be the end. But we can't do that. The drive is to know more, always, and to know more and to see more and to find out more and to go to more distant places. And it does get us in, in, into trouble, but there's there's no other way forward. Only, uh, being in the now, which is the I generation and the now generation, and now is the most important thing, and let's just revel in, uh, in, in what there is and enjoy it. That is not progress. Scientists and philosophers and you and me, we always moving forward to something else, and that is our drive. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. It, it might drive us crazy, but on the other hand, we're all we're all crazy. We are a we are a humans. Humans are crazy, and uh, and the the fact that that time time is crazy is very logical, because if we are time and time is us and and it's all change, it's obvious that time would be would be crazy within 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 a human who who himself is, if I may say the word crazy. I think that's absolutely normal, and I don't think we're gonna change it. I don't think we should want to change it. What I think is that we should we should think about it and we should think about it in in different ways. But basically at the end of the day, my opinion is that all of science, all of philosophy, all the search for how things work is a search into ourselves to find out what we are and why we are. I think that's that that's what that's what we're looking for. Who are we? What are we? And the way I would put it, because of time, is when are we? That's the thing. When are we? Okay, Ron. Well, today we've been talking about your latest book. It's entitled Time to Tell. A look at how we tick. Now, that's widely available, all the usual outlets, as I like to say. Is there anything else you'd like to share with listeners before we sign off? A website or something you might be working on? Just anything you'd like to put out there. I would like to, first of all, uh, mention that um, I am accessible to anybody who wants to discuss things with me, wants to read the book, wants to discuss it, I that is part of what I like doing. My um, my email is uh, ronald at greenloyd.com and uh, you can write to me about anything you want. I, I will answer you. I can't promise it will be the same minute, but uh, it's very, very important for me to get the message out of um, uh, to think and to think in different ways. Even if you don't agree with me, that's fine, but to think. Splendid. Well, Ron, once again, thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you very much for having me, Greg. It was, it was very nice. <laughs>